Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Hello and welcome, everyone. It is Friday. It is 1 p.m. on the West Coast, which could only mean one thing. It is time for the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. I am your host, Josh Carter. Carmen is out this week. If you're new to the show, welcome. We are excited that you're joining us. Every week, we spend some time talking to incredible founders who have one extra thing on their resume, and that is service to our country through the military. And this week, we're excited to have Dr. Eric Wan, who is the president of Wave Neuroscience. Sir, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Super. Uh, what an impressive background you have. I mean, chief physician at Boeing, president of the, like, you're, you have this incredible background. And I want to get a little bit into your service, your military service. What, uh, what prompted that? Why, 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 why the Navy? Uh, you know, for me, kind of service to the military was, was really sort of a natural fit. Uh, my parents were first generation uh, Korean Americans, and uh, they were, were very fortunate to get academic scholarships uh, to immigrate to the U.S. And growing up, we always had a deep appreciation for what this country stood for and uh, the opportunity that we had presented to us. Um, for, for their generation, uh, they were survivors of the Korean War. And, uh, of course, great reverence for the U.S. and, and liberating the country and uh, coming over. Um, we just had a deep appreciation um, and, and patriotism for, for the country. And uh, when the opportunity came to uh, – they actually offered to pay uh, for my medical school. I, I jumped on it. And uh, both a combination of, uh, you know, being able to serve, but also uh, the adventure of being able to uh, – join the military and serve in that way was uh, was really exciting for me. Your path into the military went through college, though, am I right? Yeah, well, so, yeah, I did my undergrad at Notre Dame and then, uh, and then moved on to medical school and took a scholarship for the military, uh, interned at uh, the Navy Hospital in, in Portsmouth, Virginia. Um, and then uh, in the Navy, they send you out to the fleet to do what's called uh, a, a fleet tour or a general, general medical officer tour. And that kind of comes in a few different uh, varieties. Uh, one of the options is is just what it sounds like a GMO where you're attached to um, uh, an infantry unit or a ground unit. And there's two other options. One is uh, an undersea medical officer tour uh, where you're attached to a subunit or a SEAL team. And then the last option is being a flight surgeon doing aerospace medicine, which was the route that I chose to take. And so spent six months at the Navy Aerospace Medicine Unit uh, in Pensacola, Florida, and then uh, was attached to the um, uh, HMM-268 and Marine Corps Medium Lift Squadron. Wow. And what, what did you do day to day there? Uh, that, I would say that was one of the most 
uh, fun and enjoyable jobs that I've had. It's yeah. uh, you're you're really tasked with taking care of uh, a group of uh, pilots, aircrew, mechanics. Uh, and you're really embedded uh, within that unit. And we uh, eventually deployed as, as the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit Special Operations Capable, uh, part of what's called the Westpac Tour. Mm. And um, so the mission changes a little bit uh, on deployment. Um, but, you know, back home, it was really just to uh, take care of uh, the men and women uh, of your unit and uh, ensure the safety of uh, the operations and then when you're on deployment, you're, you're just, you know, taking care of injuries, um, you know, pre-deployment vaccinations, all those things that uh, uh, I'm sure uh, people love and enjoy, you know, lots of shots, but um, just preparing for, you know, the different areas you're going to go to and the endemic diseases that you might encounter. When you got out to the fleet, what, what about it surprised you? What did you, what, what happened uh, that you didn't expect would happen? Oh boy. Um, that's a long list. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I was really, I was really um, I, I don't know that it was something unexpected, but um, I just enjoyed the experience so much. And I felt such a, a deep camaraderie and bond with uh, the people that I deployed with. And um, it, it's sort of all the best things I think you would want you know, the military to stand for, but people from all kinds of backgrounds and some of my closest friends, um, grew up in kind of very tough, uh, difficult backgrounds. And, uh, I don't mind sharing that I probably grew up in a somewhat privileged background. You know, my parents were professionals and, uh, took great care of us. And, uh, you know, this experience where sort of, uh, forged in deployment and kind of having to live with each other 24 mm-hmm. seven. Um, I don't know that I expected, uh, to enjoy it quite so much. These have been lifelong friends. And, uh, I think that that sort of unifying mission, uh, you know, doing these things, uh, for a greater purpose was something that really brought us all together. And, Probably a big part of that too is uh, I, I think I had one of the best CEOs I could ever ask for. Um, his name was Colonel Reineke, and we still keep in touch this day. And uh, you know, having been in a bunch of different uh, situations and being around a lot of great leaders, I would still say he was probably the best leader of men uh, that I've ever been around. And so, uh, all around, that that was a really I think unique and. Um, I felt very privileged and honored to have been part of uh, a really high performing team. We all take something away from the military, right? We all have something that we have done within our military career that we take with us. What do you, th- and these could be learning lessons. These could be, you know, a myriad of things, but what do you think it is that you took away from the experience that has never left you? Well, I think, a lot of it, I think, is is almost unconscious, and you, you learn a lot of lessons just in terms of the type of leader that you want to be, um, both by examples of, of great leaders, but also perhaps uh, not ideal leaders as well. And I, I still remember the first day, uh, and I'll leave the names out of it, but I, I had a, or I, I saw a doctor sort of dress down one of their corpsmen uh, in the waiting room and. Um, one of the senior chiefs pulled me aside and, and told me, Hey, you know, I'm going to talk to doc a little bit later, but I never want to see you do that. Hmm. And it's just one of those things where, it, you know, if you have a message to send, 
those types of lessons are better learned in private where you can have, um, you know, a better discussion without sort of this public humiliation component. And I appreciated, um, you know, this, uh, the sailor kind of pulling me aside and sharing with me, this is what I view as good leadership. And I always kept that with me. Um, and, and certainly it's the kind of uh, courtesy, professional courtesy and respect that I would want. Uh, and so, and, and we all lead differently, but to me, um, that was an important part of it is uh, it, it's such a large community and organization. And there are numerous examples, you know, all around us of, of good leadership and bad leadership. And uh, I think we're sort of blessed in that we're able to observe the characteristics that uh, we want to embody and uh, to exhibit, and then uh, maybe see some illustrations of uh, values and characteristics that uh, may not suit us so well. Right. You you didn't stay in very little. How long was your tour of duty? How long were you in the, the Navy? Yeah, it was just four years. They gave me credit for eight because they count medical school. Sure. Um, and, As they should. <laughs> That's a long um, time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I still think back as uh, you know, I really missed, uh, my time in when, when I got out, but, um, you know, so I was sort of confronted with this opportunity. Uh, I got accepted to the residency that I wanted at, uh, doing emergency medicine, uh, at Balboa. But, um, I also got accepted in the civilian match at a residency program at Harvard. And, um, you know, that had sort of been a lifelong dream. And, uh, I, I thought that maybe after I finished up the residency training um, there that I could circle back to the Navy. But, um, you know, I had uh, a couple of children by that time and um, life sort of intervened. And so I never, uh, never went back to service. But, um, but yeah, so uh, the sum total of that is it ended up being a fairly short stint in, in operational medicine. During that time, though, how, how many countries did you get to see? Because I, I, very similarly, in different ways, I didn't stay in very long, but I was fortunate to go to a lot of uh, countries during that time. Yeah, it's, you know, I don't know that I ever counted them up, but, the, you know, the West Packs, you end up making a lot of stops. And uh, so we were in Australia, uh, Thailand, Saudi Arabia, um, United Arab Emirates, um, Kuwait, uh, yeah, it's. I would estimate probably eight to ten uh, different countries. I'm so jealous. I never. I was always the Atlantic fleet, so we always had to go through the Atlantic into the Med. And don't get me wrong, going to Spain and Gibraltar and Greece and and Rome were a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Portugal, but I had always wished I would have gone on a Westpac. They seemed like a blast. <laughs> yeah, it, it was fun. I mean, it was a lot of work too, but you know, you sort of. Uh, slug through it, and, but uh, but yeah, it was it was a really fun deployment. Yeah, so you get out and you're at Harvard. How long before you start getting the this entrepreneurial bug? I would say it probably wasn't until years later, and yeah. um, you know, so for me, you know, we, you know, I lost like many of us, I lost some some friends in combat and in some of the. Uh, post-combat struggles uh, that uh, we have as, as a community. And so there was always this uh, part of the mission that tugged at me uh, in that, you know, I should be doing more uh, to help these people who have sacrificed for their country. And um, as I finished my training and went to clinical practice, 
um, you know, I kind of ended up in a hybrid job working at the Boeing company. Um, so, you know, the, Bo- the Boeing company, we built airplanes, but we have uh, miniature emergency rooms at all the heavy, heavy manufacturing sites. And um, so I was taking care of uh, the test pilot community and uh, taking on some different roles and ultimately ended up uh, as the chief technology officer for health services. And I was hearing about this technology locally in Southern California. And, um, you know, I, I started investigating it and uh, to make a, a really long story short, after a couple of years of due diligence, um, I, I felt like this was a career path uh, worth taking. And it wasn't necessarily born out of uh, a thirst for entrepreneurialism as much as it was uh, purpose and mission that if this is something that could save potentially hundreds of thousands or millions of lives, uh, it would be irresponsible for me. It's kind of one of those moral crossroads uh, to not put my full weight behind it and to do what I can to bring this to market and and validate it with good, robust academic science. And so, um, you know, there, there's certainly an entrepreneurial uh, spirit to it. And um, perhaps that, that is a bit in my DNA uh, but I'm not sure I fit the perfect uh, profile for an entrepreneur in the sense that, and I think most physicians end up being pretty risk averse uh, as a stereotype. Sure. Um, you know, I wasn't a big risk taker, uh, but what really drew me in and compelled me was um, to have a transformative technology that um, was saving lives and had actually, um, I think, tangibly changed the lives of several of my friends at, at that point, it, it kind of became um, really kind of all engrossing to, to see something that could uh, really disrupt the industry like that. At what point did you know you were onto something that was going to turn into a business? Uh, probably after a year or two of doing diligence on it. And so I was talking to uh, local subject matter experts in neurosurgery and neurology and, um, electrical engineers, uh, you know, ours is sort of um, a neurophysics-based technology and just trying to validate it. And then, uh, you know, you can get lost in a lot of the science and ultimately uh, where it starts to become more of a translational effort is, uh, is this really helping patients? And I was meeting uh, patients who are saying, you know, this was, uh, in fact, uh, resulting in some fairly significant improvements in symptomatology, whether it's from a concussion and TBI perspective or a post-traumatic stress perspective. And that to me was uh, pretty significant. And then there started becoming uh, an increasing pool of data to draw from. But ultimately what it kind of convinced me, I would say there are sort of two um, pivotal moments. You know, one was I had a, a dear friend who was struggling and, um, you know, he had uh, unfortunately uh, seen one of his uh, best friends die in combat. And uh, we brought him in here and he'd been struggling for years. And I wasn't expecting him to have the kind of transformation that he did. And so within two or three weeks, um, he felt quite a bit better. He looked different. Uh, and importantly, his wife uh, came to us in tears uh, was hugging everyone uh, in the clinic saying, you gave me my husband back. This is the man who married 10 years ago. And so then you start thinking, wow, you know, is this reproducible, generalizable data? And so I sent in a second Marine and a third Marine and uh, they're sharing 
uh, kind of similar stories. And so I was content to sort of be on the sidelines and promote this the best way that I could because uh, I was in a very comfortable position at, at Boeing. You know, we're uh, a Fortune 50 company. And uh, there was uh, a Navy SEAL master chief who, who kind of challenged me. And, uh, you know, we, we call these courageous conversations, but he essentially put his finger in my chest and said, what do you stand for, brother? You're going to sit on the sidelines and uh, take care of, in his words, not executives at Boeing for the rest of your life? Or are you going to get in the trenches and, and try to uh, advance his technology and, and help out your brothers and sisters? And uh, at the time, I wasn't real happy about that conversation, but um, you know, I talked to my wife about it and uh, she actually agreed and said, this is all you think about. This is all you talk about. Um, you should think about it. And so uh, after some thought, I, I jumped in and uh, was part of the executive leadership team and um, you know, I haven't looked back since. It's and, amazing. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I think one of the, real beauties of uh, our community is that we can call each other out mm-hmm. and, um, and no feelings are ever hurt. It's just, uh, um, you know, th- we're sort of good truth meters to each other. Mm-hmm. And if one of my friends is struggling, um, I wouldn't hesitate even a nanosecond to be like, Hey, what's going on? Let me help you. And part of that is I know every single one of my buddies would do the same thing for me. Um, and that I think is just born out of shared experience when, um, you're going into combat or even just the training uh, evolutions that you go through, um, you know, this friendship, this brotherhood, um, is something that I think is hard to articulate at times, uh, to people who haven't gone through it, but it's, you know, these are some of the strongest friendships that, uh, you know, I'll have in my lifetime, I'm sure. Um, but have kept in very close touch with, uh, all those friends. And, and so being able to, you know, now, that impact some of the um, clinical issues that we've been struggling with because we haven't really had great tools in the bag for post-traumatic stress and concussion. And um, although I'm, I'm not in a position from a regulatory FDA perspective uh, to make uh, any kind of claims or pronouncements, um, you know, we're seeing some promising data emerging uh, in terms of uh, this group of technologies being able to, to help individuals struggling with those conditions. And so that, you know, when you're asking about, you know, the entrepreneurial experience, I think it it was something, I guess, that transcended uh, just that whole endeavor for me. This was, I think, kind of, I guess, in some ways, a bigger calling for me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I love this. If you're just joining us, we've been talking to Dr. Eric Wan. Uh, he's the president of Wave Neuroscience. We're going to take a quick break. We'll get right back to it in just a moment. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, 
make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. And we're back. Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm talking to Dr. Eric Wan. He's the president of Wave Neuroscience. We're just talking about sort of the start of this as a company. But Eric, we haven't really talked about what uh, Wave Neuroscience is. Can you sort of break it down for us and very, like if you were to do an uh, elevator pitch? Yeah. So at our core, we're a translational neuroscience company, which means we're taking the brilliant work of academics and uh, the bench work from labs. And, and turning those into um, medical technologies that uh, our patients can benefit from and use uh, on a day-to-day basis, empowering physicians to uh, treat their, their patients in transformative and powerful ways. And one of the ways we're doing that and, and what I've sort of been uh, discussing uh, in our conversation is personalizing treatment to each individual. And there is a technology that was FDA approved around 2009 called transcranial magnetic stimulation. It was FDA approved for treatment resistant depression. And what our group of neuroscientists, doctors, and engineers has done is uh, taken uh, other technology, specifically something called a quantitative EEG, which is an electrophysiologic uh, brain mapping technology. And we're able to capture data from these brain maps uh, look at areas that may not be functioning as well as they could, and then targeting those and treating those, tuning up those areas with transcranial magnetic stimulation uh, to improve and optimize brain function. Uh, and that's kind of one of our core technologies. And we have other uh, innovations in the pop- pipeline, but that's the one that really kind of uh, drew me in to see sort of the promise uh, of this technology and how we might be able to impact lives. And when you're thinking about who your customer, your ideal customer, you know, every business goes through this endeavor, right? Which is if I got to draw out a customer persona and who I'm going to go after, who would that be for, for Wave? That's a great question. And I would say from an FDA perspective with academic studies and, and clinical science, uh, we have to declare an indication that we feel that we can uh, treat and, and impact and uh, for us, most of our studies have been around post-traumatic stress disorder uh, and concussion, uh, more specifically, uh, persistent post-concussion symptoms. But I would take a step back and say the technology was really engineered to be a neuro-optimization technology, meaning we're trying to allow this, this single organ, the brain, really the CPU of our body, to function more efficiently and coherently. And one of the byproducts of that that we've seen is really kind of almost incidental that many of our patients have said, uh, I'm shooting better. My marksmanship scores have gotten better. Uh, my reaction times have improved. I'm able to focus better than I used to. And, and so there's a lot of these other um, incidental benefits that have given us traction in this human performance, for lack of a better term, biohacking community. Uh, where people are interested in um, just doing better in, in many different disciplines, whether it's elite athletes from the NFL or Major League Baseball or the NHL or uh, chief executives who want a competitive edge. Uh, our clientele has shifted just a little bit. And I think a lot of uh, your audience, uh, kind of the entrepreneurial group, um, will also recognize that you have to listen to the market. And while you know we're very passionate about treating uh, vulnerable populations and, and patients who need help. 
uh, we've had an influx of patients who are also looking for um, performance gains, uh, whether um, you know it's kind of uh, being in flow in a certain types of athletic endeavors or uh, being able to uh, perform better in a boardroom in, in an executive level. So, uh, so it, it's, it's been a pretty broad range of uh, patient populations, um, but we found that the, those are a few that uh, have, uh, the market has given us the feedback that these are communities that uh, what we're getting traction with. That's amazing. Did you, did, did that surprise you? Did you, it surprise you that CEOs would come looking for this treatment or is that just something that because the way the technology, because the way the science is built, it's just, it's just, uh, helpful for a broad stroke uh, of use cases. Yeah. You know, it wasn't something we necessarily set out to do. Um, and my first inkling that there might be something here. So one of our studies with was with us special operations command, and I had a, a two-star general pull me aside and first express, you know, gratitude for, for what we were doing, um, helping out operators. But he also made the suggestion, um, you know, can you prehabilitate uh, operators and perhaps even make them better on target? And the honest answer at that time was we don't know. Um, but we've since set about doing uh, some more rigorous scientific study we've seen. Um, first that one of the first areas that we seem to be able to help is sleep quality, not necessarily sleep quantity, uh, but we're able to have uh, some of our uh, patients and clients achieve more REM sleep and slow wave sleep, which is uh, really transformative. You think about the downrange health and wellness impacts of improved quality of sleep. Um, That was one of those uh, findings that we're really excited by. And, uh, the way we measured that, uh, so the gold standard is something called the polysomnogram, where you spend the night in a lab with a lot of wires attached to you. Uh, but there have been new wearable devices that hit the market that are, while not quite as good as these PSGs, these polysomnograms, are between 90 to 95% as accurate. And the two, the two that we've uh, used are, there's something called a whoop band. Um, it, it just looks like a little watch, and then there's an aura ring that measure your sleep. And so we were encouraged that we're seeing uh, improvements in sleep. What we were not anticipating was we got an an unsolicited call kind of out of the blue of from one of the representatives at WHOOP who would ask, you know, we're curious curious, uh, what you guys are doing because we're seeing concomitant increases in heart rate variability. Wow. And I wasn't familiar because HRV is more of a human performance metric rather than uh, a medical metric. And so I tried to get uh, smart on this really fast. You know, what is HRV? Mm-hmm. And it is a proxy measure of autonomic tone. And some in your audience may be familiar. Uh, the autonomic nervous system is sort of you're either in fight or flight mode or you're in relaxation mode. We call these the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. And the higher your HRV number, it's supposed to be a proxy for your emotional resilience and your ability uh, to respond to uh, adverse situations. And it's interesting, we found that um, many trainers and coaches look at this as an important metric to uh, follow sort of athletic performance in uh, a variety of different dimensions. And so uh, we weren't anticipating that. And so, you know, I think it's fair to say when I first joined up, you know, our charter and our vision was 
They're really about saving lives and stamping out disease. And then to move into this performance realm, uh, there was a lot of hesitation and trepidation on the part of uh, our medical group just because, you know, you think about some of the other products, whether it's anabolic steroids or uh, methamphetamines, you don't necessarily want to be um, clustered with that group of uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, and yet, I think some of the benefits were, were fairly undeniable. Uh, and so, uh, we're, we're sort of um, treading cautiously. You know, we always want to maintain uh, scientific discipline and academic rigor. Uh, but also, if there are uh, these other benefits that uh, patients or, or clients can experience, uh, we want to be able to quantify that so people can make informed and educated decisions. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. When you're thinking about growing this business, how do you penetrate new markets? How do you penetrate new customer personas? Is it the same approach that you think other businesses take? Or is this because it's such a unique platform that it's it's a different approach that you need to take? It's fairly unique. And, uh, you know, I, I should, um, I'm going to be a bit self-deprecating at the moment and just mention we've done almost no marketing. You know, we've been very top heavy and uh, we've been um, kind of fully focused on uh, developing the technology, innovating uh, and advancing the science. And we've, you know, if we have a blind spot, I, I would say um, it's that we've not done a good enough job of self-promoting and, and marketing this. And, and so I think the upside of that is we have this great foundation of science from which we can draw uh, but we're just now, I think, starting to embark on uh, that marketing and commercialization effort. We brought in a great team. Um, and, and so Fred Walk is, is one of our uh, executive leaders. He's our CEO. And we've got uh, we just brought on um, a former SEAL team commander as our director of operations, and then Mason. And we're building out this commercialization team uh, to try to bring this uh, to the masses. And I think the feeling is that uh, everyone should have the benefit of at least knowing about the technology and deciding whether it's right for them. Um, almost everyone struggles in some way, you know, in, in some dimension, whether it's um, just kind of uh, being chronically seat deprived because we're, we're overachievers and uh, yeah. we're working too much. Or, um, you know, if uh, somebody's feeling like, you know, my ability to uh, digest information uh, from a book or uh, from whether it's a textbook or uh, a scholarly setting to, you know, just recreational reading, um, you know, could you achieve gains there? And so uh, we're just starting, I think, this uh, initiative to uh, bring this uh, to a wider scale to to more of the market. When When you look back, what do you think some of the things that you achieved or did in your military career was part of your entrepreneurial journey? Like, what do you think you've been able to take from that that's helped you through this process? You know, I would say the biggest, the biggest thing is being part of a very high functioning, high performing team. You kind of know what that looks like and feels like and, and being able to have full confidence, trust in the people to your left and your right. Um, you know, that's something that takes time to achieve and to build and to create culture. And so I would say the biggest thing that, uh, I've learned from that experience was, um, 
you know, kind of culture development, fostering uh, the right kind of environment, giving people the right decision latitude and the freedom of movement uh, to grow both from a professional and personal perspective, uh, but accompanying that with uh, the right training and the right environment from which um, to grow. And so I think uh, a part of our organization is um, just the paternal perspective of we want everyone uh, to grow and um, uh, to have the freedom to innovate and, um, you know, be the best version of themselves. Uh, and, and so I think a lot of that is born from uh, the military experience. Uh, one of the things I think uh, perhaps I had to unlearn was sort of this rigid structure uh, of rank. Uh, you know, there's there's certainly a certain amount of hierarchy, uh, I think, in a variety of organizations, and everyone's different, I think. Um, and it tends to be sort of a moving dynamic uh, type of uh, situation where organizations tend to being sort of their own uh, living, breathing entity in some ways. Uh, and so we've gone from a tiny startup to, I think now, uh, having to better define roles and responsibilities. And so uh, all these things sort of shift and morph uh, in different ways. Yeah, one of the things in the military is that there's a culture uh, good, bad, or indifferent, there's a culture in the military, right? How how important was that as you were building Wave to instill some sort of culture for your company so that as you scaled it up, as people were joining, that culture stayed no matter what size you got? Well, I, yeah, I think um, all entrepreneurs and leaders uh, will recognize culture as being uh, perhaps the most important thing you can do to drive uh, success and, and, um, really almost any dimension, uh, of, of your business is, uh, creating a culture where people, uh, can thrive and, and prosper and grow in, in many different ways. Um, it, it's funny. I, I think back to some of our early days and, uh, one of these, uh, military colloquialisms, uh, embrace the suck, you know, it's, kind of one of those philosophies yep. where, you know, there are periods where you just have to grind. Like you have to know that this period of sacrifice is going to lead uh, to bigger things down the road. And, you know, those periods uh, where, you know, you're trying to innovate and you're sifting through uh, just tons of data looking for, you know, where's the signal. Um, you know, those can be some difficult and challenging times, but uh, that's, I think, enabled and empowered us to achieve uh, a lot of what we're able to do now. Uh, and so, you know, that's sort of military term, but most of uh, the civilian population, you know, it's just about sacrificing and uh, putting in the hours and the work uh, to make things happen. And uh, fundamentally, I think that's something every organization and startup needs is uh, there's just an amount of grit and effort and uh, just tireless hours that are required uh, to reach a tipping point where you can achieve some level of success. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we asked this of every guest, and and I'm sure maybe you'll have multiple answers to this, or maybe you have many different examples of this, but what's the one thing that you screwed up so badly that you look back and you say, I have learned so much and I will never do that because it could have scuttled everything we worked for? <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and like I said, it could be 
you know, a, a wrong hire. A lot of us, you know, we bring in people that we think they're going to be great hires. They end up not being, or it could be a customer or it could be an investor that came in. That was a nightmare. I mean, there are, yeah, as I mentioned, there are millions of different things that entrepreneurs screw up all day. They could be really minor or they could definitely scuttle your entire progress. Yeah. You, you know, so even looking back, I don't know that I would change anything because all of these things sort of shape and mold you in a certain way. Oh yeah. Uh, but, you know, I would say if I had the chance to do it over again, um, it, and I wouldn't want to overreact to these kind of situations, but there was a part of me that recognizes that uh, I can be too trusting at times. And I would say part of my shift is to trust, but verify. Um, and, and so there are people, um, that, you know, you come across in, in, in business and whether it's through, uh, other types of friendships that have formed, um, uh, you know, perhaps there have been times when, uh, I've just trusted and believed without doing, uh, enough, uh, scrutiny and diligence and questioning, uh, and, and so, you know, that's a lesson that was learned uh, in a number of different ways. And uh, so now, while, you know, you can't go through life distrusting everyone, you know, especially in a team environment where, um, you know, you have to have faith in each other's abilities and capabilities and skills. Um, but uh, I, I would say in general, uh, I, I tend to be um, a bit more diligent in validating and verifying um, things rather than, uh, giving a presumption of trust right out of the gate. Yeah, definitely. What, uh, where do you see wave going in the next five to 10 years? Where do you hope, what do you hope this company becomes? Yeah, I think we're really in a growth stage now of commercialization and, uh, that's along a number of different lines. Um, and, uh, we're launching, uh, I think some really ambitious and exciting clinical trials. Uh, so on the one hand, I think we're, uh, building on a, a foundation of data that we've generated. Uh, we're taking this, uh, it's called, uh, my wave TMS also called synchronized transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, and bringing that to market at more and more clinics. Uh, so we're expanding that effort. And although I'm not ready to uh, share uh, all the details yet, we are um, in the stages of uh, developing uh, a home device uh, that people could use, uh, not necessarily with a physician's oversight is something people could use independently. And we think we're about six to 12 months away from being able to bring that to market. And uh, we think that could be a pretty significant shift uh, in our portfolio and, and some of the market dynamics. And so overall, you know, I think our goal is to provide um, neuromodulation technology and these wellness products uh, to everyone around the globe. And that's what a lot of our work and our effort uh, is at right now. That's very cool. Very cool. Where can people find you, Eric? So we actually, our, our core technology sits in uh, an organization called Wave Neuroscience. And so uh, waveneuro.com, W-A-V-E-N-E-U-R-O.com would be where uh, you could uh, research uh, our organization and our group of uh, clinics that physicians who are using the technology can be found at braintreatmentcenter.com. And that's also just how it sounds, uh, braintreatmentcenter.com. And you can see the different clinics around the country 
country and now internationally in Australia and Panama. And um, there's some other countries that'll be opening uh, soon. Um, you, can, you can review a lot of the technology at that website as well. That's amazing. I, and I should use Dr. Juan. It shouldn't be so formal, but I really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been really informative and I, I wish you guys all the best of luck. Oh, thank you. I truly appreciate the time and uh, enjoyed the, uh, uh, the interview. Thank you so much. Hey, guys, you've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast right here on the Startup Radio Network. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. Listen, learn, get stuff done. We'll see you guys next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.